This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. All parents know that they need to teach kids basic safety. Don't talk to strangers. Look both ways before you cross the street. And for many black parents, if you're not careful, cops might arrest, beat, or even kill you for no reason. And the age when kids get the talk is getting younger. The 11-year-old in Mississippi who called the police for help and ended up getting shot. And if I remember correctly, that child did say, why did he shoot me? That's the time to have the conversation? The headlines driving the talk in Black families coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. For Black families, the talk is an emotionally brutal rite of passage. The conversation that parents have with their children about how, no matter their behavior, law enforcement is likely to treat them like criminals. That means teaching your children how to react if they're stopped, threatened, or even beaten and brutalized by law enforcement for no other reason than their race. Every parent times this talk differently, but it's often prioritized for boys and tied to adolescence when many kids are taking their first steps out into the world on their own. But several reports of elementary-aged children being violently confronted by cops both in and out of school suggest that the teen years might be too late to deliver these warnings. That was true for Shanice Stewart. She recently talked with ABC News about what happened when Sacramento cops pulled her over for what she thought was a routine traffic stop in October. After they drew their guns and then demanded that the nine-months pregnant Stewart step out of the car, this was their explanation. Well, one of the other officers then told us that uh, they pulled us over because they've been watching a suspect for the last two years and the suspect's known to um, take them on high speed. So that's why they told me to toss my keys out the window and that this person is armed, known to carry a gun, saying like my baby, my eight year old, you guys confused my baby with a suspect like an, whether it was a teenager or an adult, like he's nothing but three feet, ten, maybe four feet, if anything And he just looks like a kid. You know, he had his football practice gear on. So I was still confused on how you guys, like, made that mistake. The fact that police mistook a third grader for a hardened criminal is unfortunately not new. There's longstanding research that shows that African-American children are perceived as less childlike, less innocent, and more dangerous than their white peers. And that fuels mistreatment from police and other authority figures at shockingly young ages. But is the problem getting worse, and what can be done to protect our kids? Joining us to discuss is Christina Carrega, the criminal justice reporter for Capital B News. Her story about the issue is titled, The Two Conversations Black Parents Have with Their Kids. And she joins us now. Christina Carrega, welcome to A Word. Thanks for having me, Jason. For people who aren't as familiar with the idea of the talk... Share what many black parents are telling their kids about police and what specific things they should do to lessen the chances of their child getting hurt or killed. In many households across the country right now, black households, the parents are finding moments, whether it's the Shanice Stewart incident, whether it's Elijah McClain's incident, whether it's Trayvon Martin's name that comes up in the news very often, even all these years later, the children are watching these news broadcasts. They're seeing these images on YouTube. They're hearing about it from their friends, about incidents where a friend of theirs or themselves had experienced being talked to 
by a police officer and they either knew what to say, knew how to act. But either way, these parents are finding themselves or guardians even, or even bigger brothers and sisters are talking to the young ones to tell them, listen, don't move in a certain way. Even before you even go out the house, there's preparation, making sure you're not wearing your baseball cap with the hoodie on at the same time. Yes, it's cold outside, but you also don't want to have the mask on as well as the hoodie because you may seem suspicious. That's what happened to Elijah McClain, unfortunately, just walking and being himself. He was um, profiled. And for poor little Brandon Stewart, he was just going in the car to go to football practice. And yet he was profiled just for movement. Black people are always being watched. It's not just cameras out and surveillance is there just for everyone. We're specifically always have been watched before technology even became a thing. And we have to always have this extra layer of preparation when we're encountering the other. So at least in households that I'm aware of, the talk, that's when you first start to learn how to drive is usually when that conversation happens. Because as teenagers, they're behind the wheel. They don't have the mind capacity as an adult to not make those decisions of, let me just do a rolling stop at that stop sign versus a complete stop so that the police who may have been watching out of their, their sight will pull them over for doing a rolling stop versus a complete stop. So it's like all these rules that Black folks have to live by at all ages that we just always have a guard up. What specific things should Black parents be doing to lessen the chances of their children getting hurt or killed? What are the kinds of things they can say? They can tell their children how to dress, how to behave when they're out in public by how they speak to people, having proper manners, grammar on point. And it could be all these different preventative measures that they can give their children, even if it's just holding the door open and saying thank you, just having politeness. It's all these little nuanced conversations that the parents can give their kids, even their own personal experiences of how they may have handled something when they were at school or talking to their teacher who may have been somebody who's not a Black person. Just showing respectability politics is what a lot of folks may label that as. But it's really unfortunate that we have to have this type of responsibility put on the parents all the time when there's enough going on in the world for kids to deal with that it's just something else for them to tell. It's unfortunate that parents have to have these conversations. At one level, I think this idea of act right, behave well, pull up your pants and speak politely has absolutely no impact on whether or not white people are hostile to you. Because we have dozens of examples in recent years, if not an entire lifetime, of people having followed all of those rules and still getting shot and still getting killed and still getting pulled over. So what motivated you to write the story? Because it it seems to me that even chronicling these suggestions from parents, it doesn't save anybody. And you're absolutely right. When I first started looking into this story, it was supposed to be just about the list of kids who have encountered these situations, as I noted in the article. But then as I was having these discussions with the experts that I also interviewed, they started coming up with the talk conversation and respectability and how to be around other people. 
this conversation is not just about what happened to Shanice Stewart and all these other innocent victims who have been encountered by the police. It's really about exposing these conversations that Black families have to have with their kids. Yes, we know that there's nothing that we really can do but live and breathe and end up getting shot or assaulted. There's no playbook on how this can actually be a preventative measure. But I don't think there's been enough conversation about the fact that we're even having these conversations for the other folks to understand that Black people are always having to prepare for them and they don't have to prepare for us. That's why I think that this conversation needs to happen, that maybe white families need to learn how to talk to us. That way, possibly before they become a police officer, they won't have to do something wrong to then have the implicit bias training to then learn why the root of their actions caused this child to be in fear for his life at eight years old because you racially profiled or you thought he looked bigger than what he was based on what your life's experiences have been as a white person in this country. The Black Lives Matter movement brought the talk to the attention of people Outside of the black community, you had all sorts of conversations about it. Um, about six years ago, the YouTube channel Cut released a video of black parents giving the talk to their kids. I want to play this clip and, and talk about it on the other side. We actually have a line that we do at our house. We practice this thing. What is it? I'm Ariel Sky Williams. I'm eight years old. I'm unarmed and I have nothing that will hurt you. It's just kind of a thing we practice at our house. There are great police officers out there. There's also some police officers who are not so good. And my fear is that you run across one of those bad ones. For some reason, people of color have always been a target by the police. Before they became a policeman, they were a person. And that person took all their ideas and all their thoughts and all their prejudice into their job. When you hear these kinds of of, of clips and conversations with six, seven, eight-year-olds, Is this possibly causing harm in some respects with this talk? Are we infusing our children with a fear of the outside world that they cannot control? I wrestle with that thought so often. I have nieces and nephews, you know, from all age ranges. And I wonder when should this conversation happen, especially with my nephews, because we see how we're perceived. It's like, when do you talk about it? Do you sit them down for a television show and have them ask the questions? Do you just bring it up when it comes on the news? Are y'all even watching the news together? It's a question I ask a lot of parents. When do you tell your child about these things? And they wait for them to have an experience for the child to come to them and say, mom, dad, this happened today at school. Or while I was walking down the street, this person said this to me and they didn't know how to react, right? But those are moments where thankfully nothing happened to the child for them to wonder, why did this happen to me? Like the 11-year-old in Mississippi who called the police for help for his mom and ended up getting shot by that officer. So those confusing words, and if I remember correctly, that child did say, why did he shoot me? Right. Is that the time to have the conversation? You know, I don't know when the proper time is to have these conversations, but the fact that, to your point, Black Lives Matter exposed the talk for police and children for the rest of the community to know that this is what our Black kids have to deal with because of how y'all act towards us. I think, again, we just need to continue to let them know, like, this is how y'all treat us. And I don't think it's fair that we have to now put that um, heavy 
emotion right. onto a child just for them to now sit back and process words that they may not even understand. We're going to take a short break and we come back more on black children and the talk. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to a word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're speaking about the talk and the adultification of black children with journalist Christina Correga. Let's talk a little bit about the root of this problem. As part of your reporting, you spoke with a social scientist about the adultification of black kids where it starts and how it spreads. First off, what is adultification and where does it begin? Adultification is this term that pretty much sees a child as older than what they really are. So a child that may be 10 years old may have gotten a growth spurt and they're five foot five at 10 and they may appear to be 14, 15 years old. And somebody who encounters them not knowing how old they are until they open their mouth, truly, they make a judgment based on who they're looking at. And then they're treated like an adult. And when it comes to law enforcement, when they are seeking this suspect that has some vague description and they're just looking for a black person, black hoodie, which seems to be a very universal search for black people when they're looking for us for something, they just pull out whoever they see, regardless of age, and they're interrogating said person. So that's adultification. And what the experts have found, you know, through research where they talked to several students over a course of time, and I believe Professor Brittany Fox Williams had spoken to over a dozen New York City kids under the age of 18 to get their experiences on what happened to them when they got stopped. Now, that experiment obviously was after they were stopped by the police. And these are age ranges from eight years old until 17. And she had a couple of 18-year-olds in that mix. And they were perplexed. They were surprised. Some of them were hurt. And some were even proactive, like, how can I stop this from happening to other people? So you had a mixed range of responses from these kids about being stopped by the police under suspicion of who knows what. One student, Brittany Fox um, Williams, was able to share an anecdote about with me was a young lady who said that every time she went on the subway, she has the student metro card that has a distinctive color to show it's not a regular metro card to get on the subway. And she every day expected to be stopped by the police accused of stealing a child's metro card. Mm. And for her, the first time it happened, she was embarrassed. But then when it kept happening, she realized, okay, why are they thinking I'm an older person? So she started changing how she was dressing and she tried to change her hairstyle and she she was still being stopped. So she just didn't understand what it was. So it became a regular everyday thing. And a lot of kids and a lot of adults, if you ask these questions to, they're desensitized. We sometimes hear about, or we hear the voices of parents when they're talking about their understanding of these confrontations with kids and police. And we talked about Shanice Stewart at the top of this program. She shared a recording of her son, Brandon, reacting as she followed police instructions and walked towards the cops with her hands up. I'm going to play some of this sound and we're going to talk about it. When you've talked to experts, what do we know about the psychological impact 
of these confrontations with the police on children. Because it's not just, obviously, death is one consequence, right? But we're also talking about when they see this happen to their parents. What's the psychological impact on young black children when they have these encounters with cops or see these encounters with cops with authority figures who are supposed to protect them? You're growing up being taught that you call the police for help. You call the police if you need any kind of assistance that you can't do on your own. And your parents are your protectors. They're the ones that guide you. They're the ones that love on you. They're your first love. They're your first friends. They're your first everything, right? And you see the authority attacking your parent and you as the child is like, what do I do? So that initial stage of like confusion is one thing, right? Then to your point, if the parent gets arrested and is put in the back of the police car, now they have a moment of abandonment. Depending on the age of the child, how do they get home? Will they be put into ACS custody, child protective services custody? Can their um, other parent or guardian or another relative, grandma, grandpa, come get them from the police station? Now they're being put into a police car. They're around strangers. Their security blankets are taken away. And these are all things that are affecting that child. And for a child not to be able to help their parent when they're in need, because their parent is always there for them when they're in need. Those are the most damaging things that can happen to a child in their life because they will remember that forever and a day. And if and when it happens to them, they're going to recall that moment again. It's going to be a continuous scab they're going to be picking at for the rest of their lives. Did you talk to experts who would say the best way to equip Black children is not to teach them how to interact within the confines of a system that's inherently unfair, but to teach them that the system is unfair from the beginning and to be prepared for that, as opposed to trying to get them to put on the mask and play mind games. Are there any experts who say, hey, we should just tell these kids that's what white people are, that's how they operate, and that's a better way to go? Well, Sean Eldridge, who is the director of law enforcement initiatives for the Center of Policing Equity, talked in depth about that and put his own personal experiences into the story where he talked about his experience as growing up in Kentucky and his grandfather giving him the real deal about what goes on in Kentucky every year where they're idolizing this Confederate leader. I didn't have this in the story, but he told me anecdotally that him and his family would leave town because they knew the Klan was coming in. They knew that there was going to be a bunch of racist things happening. And he's a kid at that time. I think he was under 10 years old learning this stuff, the history Mm -hmm. of the country and what it is and what's happening. Is it unfair that they have to leave their home for a day because they know it's going to be like a purge version from what it was back in the day? No, it's not fair. But I think you're right that education always education about these topics, the history of, so people can have an understanding of why things are happening now. Hopefully it's supposed to prevent the um, circle of life of things happening, repeating itself. I don't think we have enough people having those conversations with kids in their homes as well as in every home, because I think even if white people learned about their history, KKK and everything, Jim Crow and all the things, 1619 project, they trying to keep all those things out of schools. I think that would do them some justice because the ones who are aware and they like to say woke, they are the ones trying to do some kind of better. And we had all those senators kneeling in 2020 after George Floyd. And where are we now with that bill? 
The history can't keep repeating itself. But if we don't talk about the history and teach the history and digest the history, we will continue to make these mistakes. So I think I agree with you on getting that civic duty in history, in classrooms and at home. Double it up. We're going to take a short break and we come back more about the evolution of the talk with journalist Christina Correga. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to a word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're joined by criminal justice journalist Christina Correga about the talk and the ongoing threat black children face from law enforcement. Christina, there are organizations now like Colin Kaepernick's Know Your Rights Camp that actually take the talk about black children learning about interacting with police and law enforcement a step further and offer training to black kids to help keep them safe in police encounters. Is the Know Your Rights Camp a model? Has that changed anything? Knowing your rights, 100%. I'm standing by that because I am a firm believer in explaining the law to kids, adults who may not realize their rights if something like that were to happen where they're stopped by the police. Some people just don't know that they don't have to speak to the police officers. They don't know that they have the right to ask a question. Yes, again, we could go back to how everybody has been taught certain things. And if they do it by the book, they still can get arrested. Yes, we can have all the preparation. We can have all these organizations with federal funds and nonprofit monies coming in to help support these trainings. But it's, again, it's just going to be lip service to some people while others are still out there doing what they were historically taught to do, which is adultify Black children. There is an element to this, though, that I think when we're talking about giving the talk to Black children that I do think might still be effective. And again, I'm wondering what your reporting showed on this, whether it was Elijah McLean or other instances, when you're talking about little black boys and girls who might have disabilities, they might be on the autism spectrum. They may have learning disabilities. They may have social anxiety disorder, et cetera, et cetera. Does it matter more to give this kind of talk when you're dealing with neurodivergent children? I think it's a good point that you bring up. And I would like to add, you you might want to talk about this to kids who are multilingual, who don't know English as a first language. They have ESL that they're learning in school. I think those who have what is maybe considered a disadvantage should be drilled in those lessons because they're not going to learn it as quickly as a a child who doesn't have a learning disability or doesn't know English as a first language. So I think that would be something to look into. And I I am curious to know if they are even being taught those lessons. But even as we hear about police officers who don't know how to deal with mental health, period, there's too many incidents of people with mental health who are being killed by the police because officers are not trained on how to identify that somebody has a learning disability and they're being killed on the streets almost it's it's too often as well. You've done this work on the talk. You've talked to these experts. You've talked to parents who are giving these talks to their children. What would your advice be to people who aren't parenting black children? What can they do? What can a white person listening or a Hispanic person or an Asian person or heck, even a black person in authority who doesn't necessarily recognize that, oh, hey, my authority may be perceived differently. What would your advice be to people who aren't parenting black children right now as to what they can do to address or mitigate some of these negative encounters or some of these experiences with positions of authority, especially police? 
I think that's a great question that I think most parents, all ethnicities, backgrounds should be aware of other races. Um, there are museums like the African-American Museum down in D.C. There are the Holocaust Museum. You have all these museums that teach about the history of a people. And I think as children are growing, as parents are parenting these kids, whether they're Asian, whether they're South Asian, whether they're Hispanic, Latina, whatever, they should be exposing their kids to other cultures throughout the time that they have a responsibility to their children to teach them these things on top of the civic engagement lessons that they should be having. Whatever's happening in school, whatever's not happening in school, as parents, they should be doing their due diligence and doubling up on those particular lessons so that their kids are well-equipped to know how to interact with all types of people. Their their children will be better people for it, honestly. So I I think that's the only thing I I would walk away with in this conversation is education. History lessons are the key to like, hopefully not repeating the, the things that happened in the past. Christina Correga is the criminal justice reporter for Capital B News. You can find a link to her article about the talk on our show page. Christina, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. That's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word. 